Welcome to Deleted Saves. On this episode, Dishonored 2 on PS4. The world and setting of the Dishonored franchise is not only a love letter to the whole stealth genre of games, something that is so pervasive now in gaming that one can be forgiven for forgetting that at one time this was its own genre, but it is also a love letter to steampunk and magepunk as sub-subgenres of fiction. But how can a world so full of promise bring us a sequel so fucking bland? Let's look into that as I discuss 2016's Dishonored 2. When I reviewed the first Dishonored, I stated it was a world chock full of things to see and explore. I also said I picked up the sequel and just stopped playing it. Well, I came back to it after several years to see if maybe a second go-around would produce different results. The game is just as beautiful and dense as the first game, perhaps even more detailed and lovingly crafted in the generational leap from the Xbox 360 to the PS4, or on various upgrades and graphics cards if you are a PC player. Because we all know PCs smolder and catch fire if you try to play games on them without the latest graphic card that is usually the size and loudness of the average swamp boat and about the same cost as your average aircraft carrier. But let's look into the overall plot before I get further into it. Several years have passed since the first Dishonored, and young Emily Caldwin has grown up to fill her late mother's shoes as Empress. And Corvo Otano, the hero of the first game, is now openly recognized as protector of the realm as well as Emily's father, which he is. So the late Empress and her chief murderer got a little too close, I guess. During a remembrance ceremony for the late Empress, the doors burst open and a woman named Delilah enters with her attendants and clockwork robots, and claims to be the unknown half-sister of the former Empress. She also brings with her Duke Luca Abel of the island of Serconos, one of the other islands in the chain the Empress rules. Worse, Delilah claims to know who the mysterious crown killer is who has been killing all of Empress Emily's political enemies for months, and that it is actually Emily and Corvo working in tandem. At this point, we must choose who we want to play as, either Corvo or Emily, as Corvo has taught her all of his old skills. Whoever we pick, the other is frozen into stone by this Delilah, who claims to have been taught magic and is a witch. The character we pick is then knocked out and placed in the tower of the royal palace, where we wake up and begin to have to sneak, stun, or outright murder our way out. It is here we must already choose if we want to do a high chaos or low chaos run. Well, what does that mean? High chaos means slaughtering everyone you meet, being utter shit at stealth, and murdering high-profile targets. In doing so, the new bloodfly plague worsens, like the rat plague of the previous game. Low chaos runs mean you sneak around without being seen, avoid killing at all possible, and just knock out high-profile targets. This lessens the bloodfly plague, and in either case, both runs change the ending of the game. In any case, whoever we pick has to flee Dunwall, the setting of the previous game, and finds a ship captain named Megan Foster and boards her ship, the hilariously named Dreadful Whale, to flee to Karnaka, the capital of Serkonos, to play out the rest of the story. Our first mission 
will be to find the location of Anton Sokolov, our Leonardo da Vinci slash Nikolai Tesla analog for this world, and uncover the real identity of the crown killer. The rundown asylum that supposedly houses the crown killer is instead full of the Duke's goons, and the crown killer turns out to be the alternate persona of chief alchemist of Karnaka, named Alexandria Hypatia, who created it on accident after use of an experimental serum, and whom you can kill or cure. But the reveal nets the actual location of Sokolov, as a prisoner of the grand inventor of the land named Kirin Jindosh, and Sokolov is somewhere in Kirin's clockwork mansion. Ugh, I mean, I guess. I feel like the jealous rival inventor plot has been done too much, and sad to say I really wasn't looking forward to entering a clockwork mansion to explore. I don't know why the idea just didn't appeal to me and the shitloads of robots that could only be defeated by a very specific means just made it worse. From here, and with Sokolov in tow, we found out our next target is the curator of the Royal Conservatory, named Brianna Ashworth, who is a witch in Delilah's employ. Exploring here uncovers that it was Ashworth who brought Delilah back from the Void, the playground of an entity known as the Outsider. And this has ties back to the DLC of the first game. So if you never played that, then all this will mean nothing to you. Additionally, the assassin Dowd, who killed the previous Empress in the first game, is the one who threw Delilah into the void. So, yay? Anyway, whether you defeat or kill the witch, the reveal is that Delilah can't be defeated by normal means, as she has made herself immortal. Stuck for ideas, Sokolog suggests a trip to a silver magnate's mansion who has something to do with all this. And there, our player learns that not only will he, is he barking mad after seeing Delilah return, but we now know the crown killer, Ashworth, Kieran, and the Duke were all responsible for bringing Delilah back from her otherworldly prison. And that Delilah has stuffed part of her soul into a statue, making her immortal. Clever. I think I played at least three different officially published Dungeons & Dragons adventure modules where the bad guy of the dungeon did the same thing. Our next stop is Duke Abel's mansion to kill or dispose of him. And whatever you choose, you claim the soul chunk from the statue and return with it to Dunwall. Once there, you confront Delilah, shove her soul back into her body, and can now finally kill her or trap her in her own painting forever. From here, our endings unfold. With low chaos, you can save the player character you didn't choose, cooler heads prevail, Emily becomes a good and just ruler, blah, blah, blah. In high chaos, you can either save or choose to leave the other players stay frozen forever, you become a tyrant, blah, blah, blah. I mean, I always choose the good path in these games because I enjoy being a hero, but just somehow this didn't land for me. I feel like it somehow should have been more nuanced than what we got, but I guess that was not the path Arcane Studios, maker of both games, went with. Oh, as an aside, should Megan the ship captain survive to the end of the game, she reveals she was someone else entirely, and goes looking for the assassin Dowd for the Death of the Outsider DLC, which I did not play. Don't ask me to, I won't do it. It is not like Dishonored 2 doesn't do a few new things. Within the first few stages, the Outsider, 
the dark god of the setting who occasionally chooses to bestow magic upon certain individuals who he finds interesting, returns to cryptically explain to either Emily or Corvo what is going on, and asks if they would like magic, rather than making it mandatory. So you can opt into or out of a powers run, meaning you don't need to use magic if you don't want to. And both Corvo and Emily get different spells, and so who you pick can alter your powers. Additionally, there is now black market merchants who will sell you gear, expanded weapons upgrades compared to the first game, and the occasional charms that can augment your powers and abilities. But by and large, Dishonored 2 is a repeat of the first game. Sneak around, steal valuables for cash, grab up ammo and goods, wait around while enemies pathfind set routines, and routines giving you a moment or two to knock them out or slit their throats. And there we go. Yes, it's nonlinear. Yes, these are about small stories to find. But there are still thugs and guards, crazies and civilians. Now it's just interspersed with robots. Same shit, different city. Except now, instead of an old bar being your hideout, a repurposed coal scow is where you hide between missions. Arcane Studios did make some changes from the first game in response to criticism of the first Dishonored. First of all, the Lyon France division was almost solely responsible for the development of Dishonored 2, as the Austin, Texas division was busy with Prey, another game I was awfully lukewarm on, and which reminded me strongly of a Bioshock, but with black jello monsters hiding as desk chairs and coffee cups. But the changes included changing the difficulty to make the harder settings harder, voice protagonists, making the bone charms craftable, making the chaos system more nuanced, although you could have fooled me there, and they added more representation in the setting of non-white characters and non-heterosexual characters. Again, cool, but somehow I just kind of accepted this as normal and it was not a selling point. But hey, I guess maybe that's a good thing if I just see it as normalized, right? Anyway, the look of the game itself was heavily influenced by the look of paintings, generally the kinds of styles more famous in the 17 and 1800s. Southern Europe nations served as the setting inspiration for Karnaka, sort of a Mediterranean coastal town by way of Malibu. The idea was to make the place seem more real, more warm and sunny, despite the gas lamp industrial setting where flintlocks and teleportation magic exist side by side. They also hired a number of well-known actors to do voices, among them recognizable names like Rosario Dawson, Pedro Pascal, Sam Rockwell, and Vincent D'Onofrio. But did any of this actually help? That is a loaded question. The critics were really kind of all over the place in reviewing Dishonored 2. No score, despite the variety of review outlets, gave the game less than a 7. So in reality, not a bad game. Pretty serviceable. But it was such a range from 7 to 10 out of 10s that it can be hard to guess. Overall, though, it was positively received and sits at around 88 on Metacritic across all platforms, which might be our most average response here. Dishonored 2 was praised for its look, stealth mechanics, and improvement on the chaos mechanic, but it was picked apart for its main story quests, feeling rushed and poorly developed, which I actually agree with in one of my rare Agree with the Critics moments, 
and it did pretty well in sales, but not as well as the previous game. It's not horrible by any means, but, well, let's get into it. Look, dear listener, I'm not going to mince words here. Dishonored 2 is perhaps one of the most beautiful yet sadly vapid and empty experiences in a game I've had in recent memory. It's like a model who can barely tie their shoelaces. Nice to look at, but frustratingly dumb overall. The biggest example of this is the Clockwork Mansion stage of the game, which was cool to look at, but after the first area and the introduction of the villain in that area, who talks to you initially through a plate of glass and spills you out into his mansion where switches change the scenery, and you have to sneak behind walls to complete it, I honestly felt like I just wanted this shit to be over. Yes, it is a clever mechanic and setting, but it is still boring somehow. And somehow, getting through the puzzles and trying to sneak around or bypass the robots and mortal guards to save the character of Sokolov, which we already had to do last game, is just... Nah, I was done. The rest of the game was likable enough, but I couldn't be bothered to give a shit about the final villain or what she wanted. I liked Emily and Corvo. I really did. But everyone else was just one-sided. Yeah, I don't enjoy gathering... Ca- I did enjoy gathering cash to buy stuff for the black market, but it didn't earn enough to get me more than one or two things at a go. I just didn't want to explore the same way I did the first game. I'm not even sure why. I think after Prey, and then coming back to Dishonored 2, I feel like the wheels had come off of the first-time impressive arcane formula. I feel like some of the magic had been lost, which had nothing to do with their association with Bethesda as their publisher, and even less to do with anything outside of their studio since they were bundled in with the Microsoft purchase. This was long before, frankly, illegal, but nothing we can do about it because money talks corporate mergers. And I don't want to slam them over a game I never played and never will play. But I am aware of the trouble they had with their Redfall release. I mean, shit, even if you had a passing interest in gaming in 2023, you heard about the problems with this game had because we as a society love watching a beloved company fall on its face. But I think the problems Arcane had with that game started long before now. I am hesitant to say this, but in the wake of playing through Dishonored 2, I'm thinking Arcane was a one-hit wonder. Great opening game, much like a great hooky song. But the rest of their catalog, much like a bad album, is full of middling squirts of pixelated diarrhea that is doomed to be lost to the passing of time. But again, Dishonored 2 is not bad or enraging. It's just bland. And despite the fact that they did more and made improvements, it is somehow less in the face of what they did previously. But, you know, if you did like the first game, then there is more here to love, or at least experience. And if you hated the first game or were unimpressed by it, then nothing here will change your mind as it is more of the same, maybe slightly smoother and prettier. All that hard work is something, at least. And hey, I thought the way the punch card reading phonographs from music and traditional in-game logs that video games so love instead of logbooks and diaries was kind of fun. It's not much, but it kept me entertained for a bit. But it is unlikely that we will get a third game. And that is perhaps for the best. Dishonored 2 has not actually lost any honor. Instead, 
it is more like a tired boxer coming out of retirement for one more fight, just to make a paycheck. Not any less valiant for its past success. Just not what we knew or were hoping for. Thank you for listening. Deleted Saves would like to thank Brad, Keith Gasper, Ordon Wells, and Mass Lama for being patrons of the show. If you would like to become a patron of the show, please go to patreon.com and check out Deleted Saves podcast. All donations go directly towards maintaining the show itself. Thank you.